Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, uh, this is Annabelle. Welcome to I'm Absolutely Fine and the summer special that we are calling No Wonder You're Pissed Off. Listen, sometimes we need reminding that it isn't us that's failing. It's the entire fucking system that's stacked against us. So we have interviewed three brilliant American women who dedicated their careers to looking at the patriarchy. Ada Calhoun with her Generation X defining book, Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. Eve Rodsky's Manifesto for Female Creativity, Find Your Unicorn Space, Elise Lunan's primal roar that is on our best behaviour. Presumably, you're already angry. Have a listen, get angrier, and feel better. We could say, feel empowered, but we can't quite bear it. Remember that you are not alone. After all, if we're not in it together, we're not in it at all. These are highlights, not new recordings. What was really very interesting about your book about Gen X women was that we all know that, that, that we're panicking and we're worried and we feel like we're failing and we feel a lot of shame. We'll talk about that later. But what you did so coherently and fluently was to contextualise that mm-hmm. within the sort of time that we were born and the opportunities that were supposedly given to us, but sort of simultaneously taken away. Can you talk to us a little bit about, about that nest into which we, you know, emerged yeah, so um, so for the book, I interviewed a couple hundred women, and what a lot of them said was that they thought they would be further along by now. They thought they would have a family, but they didn't. They thought they would have a high-flying career, and they didn't. They If they did have both things, they thought it would feel different. They thought they would be relaxed and not um, miserable and exhausted. And what I kept hearing over and over was this separation between what they thought was going to happen what we thought was going to happen, I should say, and then what actually did happen. Um, And what I also heard was a lot of the women were blaming themselves for their failures. So if if they weren't able to have all the things they thought, um, then it was because they didn't work hard enough or because they didn't, they weren't on the right diet or because they weren't putting themselves out enough in the dating world or they're, you know, they, they had this mantra that they were telling themselves about how they had failed. And the book is an argument for looking at a wider context and saying, maybe it wasn't you that screwed something up. Maybe we were sold a bill of goods and told we could do things um, without being given any resources for actually achieving them. Yes, so so this idea of being able to have it all very quickly flipped into the into the pressure of of needing to do it all, feel it all, and and make it all happen. 
I remember thinking that I, I was having it all as a young, as a teenager, even in the 90s, even as some strange man stuck his hand up my skirt. I mean, you know, this having it all thing was a really, it was a big pressure for us. It was like, okay, if you're going to have it all, you're going to have to do it all. I thought that perfume yes. advert that you talk about at the beginning saying that the, 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 the perfume will take you to be the 24-hour woman and the idea that you have to be basically be on for 24 hours um, and be sexy and funny and successful and caring and, you know, the Melanie Griffith, which you reference a lot, which is, you know, I've got a head for business and a bod for sin. And we're all like, yes, yes, we've got that, we've got that. And then actually now we're like, no, I have a bod for like lying down and eating lasagna and a head that can't remember where I put my keys. And a head for putting the keys in the fridge. It's so depressing. That's very funny. Yes, that Anjali perfume commercial, it was funny how many women sang that whole thing to me when I when I mentioned the pressures of having it all. Um, so, you know, it begins, you can, I can bring home the bacon and fry it up in the pan and never let you forget you're a man. Um, and I think it was, it really crystallized the message we got, which was that we were supposed to, as you said, like, be perfect in the bedroom, be perfect in the kitchen, be perfect in the workplace, and somehow do it all at the same time. Um, without missing a beat and without anyone else actually um, doing anything to make that feasible. So, you know, the, in yes, the same numbers. Also, yeah. with, also without being a vibe killer or oh, yeah, ever no. saying, yeah. Exactly. While, while being very cheerful about it. Um, <laughs> and yeah, but like, you know, women marched into the workplace and men did not return to the home in equal numbers. There, there was no, there was no compensation for that work that women started to do. And so women just had to add things without anything being taken off their plate. Um. Someone did the maths during lockdown about um, the hours that women were needing to work when they were having to work full-time jobs, homeschool, do the housework, and so, and it added up to 26 hours a day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You know, it just wasn't. It just wasn't possible, and we wonder why we feel bad. And the the trouble is, is that is is not only do we feel terrible, we feel terrible about feeling terrible. We feel ashamed that we're failing to the point where not only have, have we not achieved what we were set up to think we could achieve, mm-hmm. but that that we're not even happy with our lot. So that leads, I think, to this isolation that um, that you are countering in your book, aren't you? Really? Yeah. I mean, that was that was the main goal for the book was just to take away take away that shame and that sense of being alone in all this. Um, so many of the women I talked to said the same things, um, but, but really seemed convinced that, that they were the only people who were going through it. And, um, and that's something that since the book came out, I've been hearing over and over again is just this sense of relief that, that it's, I mean, it's, it's sort of a depressing relief. It's like, like, oh no, we're all screwed. But it's like, hey, we're all screwed. <laughs> There's something a little comforting yeah. in that. Well, I think also it's comforting because you sort of legitimized the anxiety and the panic and the fear because you said okay there are actual factors like economic realities that are different from other generations there are um you know even just the basic fact that we are doing more childcare now than mothers did in 1965 is enough to make you think yeah. oh my god you know of course stay yes. at home mothers working women are doing more childcare than stay at home mothers did that's right that's the bit that's the bit another bit of maths that somehow doesn't seem possible 
Yes. No, exactly. It's like, and I, so I think like there are all of these different trends, um, wages, wages falling, job stability falling, um, you know, hitting one recession after the other as you try to climb the corporate ladder, then getting rid of middle management right when you get to middle management, um, you know, having less children, but focusing on them a lot more. So you have to, uh, you know, be much more engaged as a parent than your parents were while you're also supposed to be acing it and pretending you don't have children in the workplace. And it's just these, one thing after the other that I was seeing in the, in the statistics and the, and the cultural trends was like, everything is making women more tired. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's really the thing. I mean, we can talk, we'll talk about the money panic and the sort of body panic and the hormone panic in a minute, yeah. but the, the sheer exhaustion, that thing of waking up and, and, and longing to go back to bed all day, that thing. I sometimes am so tired that I, I, I actually bounce off walls. I can't walk <laughs> in a straight line like I'm drunk and unfortunately I'm not. Um, and it's and it's the exhaustion. And so there also we have, you know, the waking up at 4.13. Mm-hmm. But also the fact that perimenopause can make you incredibly tired. Yes. And because of the, the denial that you talk about in your book, what we don't realize is we're, we're, we're in it, we're, we're in for about nine years, seven to nine years, aren't we, of perimenopause? Um, and so that's going to start at sort of 43 or 44. Mm-hmm. But we don't want to admit that that's happening. So we're trying to ride these feelings, these, this, kind of, this kind of derangement that mm-hmm. enters our lives in our early 40s, I think. Yeah, no, and, and I, that was the, the chapter that made me the most, the angriest and the most frustrated to write because I have gone to my annual exam every year. Like I've gone to checkups, I read magazines, I read books. And the idea that I had never even heard the term perimenopause and still, until I started working on this project and, um, and I'd been in it for three years probably. And, and then here I was like just learning about it. Why did no one tell me? Um, I, I found myself quite, quite angry. Um, <laughs> And it's, it's, the thing is, it's about 80% of women have major symptoms, maybe 20% are just fine, and they coast through, but then 80% are having these symptoms, and often thinking they are something else. So the the mood swings, the waking up at night, weight gain, all of these things um, come from these fluctuating hormones. And, and you can get them under control. And you, you know, there are things you can do. But if you don't know, that's what it is, then you're just left to think you're going crazy. And and certainly our mothers never, never talk to us about it because you know the just the word menopause men oh pause you know we are educated to believe it's going to make us you know unfuckable yeah. crumbling skeletons you know <laughs> very dusty with, with, <laughs> yeah dusty and oh. spidery with no relevance yeah. and and the shame around that mm-hmm. around no one knowing that it had happened yeah yeah and i think as well thing. because we're because we feel like 40 now or 42 now isn't the same as 40 then in our mother's generation we feel like we're younger and we feel like so therefore this shouldn't be happening to us now we're an absolute kind of denial about it and that only adds to it and so yeah so we feel even more divorced from this from this sense of what's happening with our bodies and I think um yeah I think it's incredibly depressing and I I think the other thing is is that the symptoms are so they they kind of it's so it's such a vicious cycle isn't it because the symptoms are so make us so like un unpleasant to be around you know rage and lack of sleep and you know exactly uh, you know lack of confidence body changes but also huge lack of compassion because if you are being this cruel to yourself Mm -hmm. then you're being really cruel to everybody around you so you become the sort of angry asshole middle-aged woman that you know that you desperate exactly what you desperately don't want to be so you're in this awful cycle of misery and in terms of solutions apart from things like you know 
carefully managing your hormones with the right support. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you stumble across as things that made you and, and, and your contemporaries start to feel a bit less desperate? Yeah, so one of the big things that surprised me was just being around other women of the same age. So community support um, and, and finding solace in one another and companionship and this sense that you're not crazy, you're not alone, um, and, and that you can actually talk through this stuff in a real and honest way. And that's, that's I, the happiest I've been um, since the book came out is when I've heard that women have used the book as a tool to talk to um, their friends, their sisters in these ways that are um, more honest and, and kind of more detailed than they had before. And they're not kind of saying everything's fine. They're saying, oh, did you read this book? Like, did you relate to any of it? I related to some of it. And then a couple glasses of wine later, and they're having these conversations that are maybe long overdue. Some of that stuff is an adjustment for us, isn't it? Because when you look, I look back and I look at things like Rotary Club, Women's Institute, Mm -hmm. all these things that we grew up feeling very, very sneery and mocking about. Mm -hmm. But in fact, maybe, maybe those bitches had a point. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's true. And that is, that's another big trend for our generation is to run away from organized religion and organized anything and to not be joiners. Like that is, was a real say anything kind of like... Um, you know, teen movie uh, staple was to be like, I'm not, I'm not part of part of your whole scheme. I'm going off on my own. But it turns out being off on your own is very lonely and, and community <laughs> is rather nice, especially at times like yes. this. And so you're talking about seeing other women in an organized fashion, whether it's a book club or a pizza club or a gin club or a, you know, yeah. screaming into the vortex. Yeah. Club. Oh, but I, I, think there's a, I think there's a point to that because I know that when I'm feeling at my most worried um uh i will try very hard to isolate Mm -hmm. so i will cancel a dinner i certainly wouldn't do anything spontaneous but maybe if there is something and the whole point of it is it sits there in your diary and it's once a month and you can go and you can be whoever you are however pathetic you feel (laughs) that is on that day it's in there and other women you know will understand and will see you yes yeah i mean that was what worked for 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 me so um i had a couple of author friends who i talked to a lot and we thought you know we should really open this up to other women because we can get help from people who are further ahead and we can help people who are just coming up and we can share resources and just talk about journalism um and we started having it and people were coming from out of state i mean we thought there would be 10 people and there were like 60 um it just it grew really really fast and um because people needed it and then yeah we just have it in our calendar once a month it's at a cheap bar so even if you're broke you can get a beer for five bucks and and be there and, and be happy and yeah it's it was a lifesaver for me This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, you guys know that we're not shy about getting things off our chest. The tiny inconveniences that can ruin our days to the big, overwhelming worries that can flood our nights. Trouble is, we all got into the habit of saying, I'm absolutely fine. Emily and I added the but specifically to get off autopilot and give ourselves the space to say what we were really experiencing. But we weren't always so free with our inner furies. A few years ago, I began experiencing debilitating panic attacks because I felt I couldn't tell anyone all the things that I was feeling, that I was not coping, that I felt like a failure. I was so ashamed, so I kept it all bottled inside. And of course, it started leaking out. It was only when I found a therapist and began sharing those doubts and insecurities with her that the panic began to dissipate. Because therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash midalt. That's better H-E-L-P dot com slash midalt. Better help, because sometimes the best thing to do is acknowledge that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine. Your book opens with a with a with a chilling, chilling question that uh, someone was asked on a date. And and I, I saw this and my blood ran cold because if someone asked me this question, I'd have an immediate nervous breakdown, which reinforces to me that I'm in trouble. And the question is, what do you do for fun? <laughs> I mean, as Emily was saying, how are we even meant to know what brings us joy at this point? Well, I think that's such a great question. Uh, and it's actually why a book about creativity, Annabelle, became a sequel to a book about uh, men doing more in the home. Uh, it seems like a strange, strange sequel. Uh, but but what was, so ha- what was so interesting to me is that the through line of, of my work um, you know, it reminds me of user suspects. I don't know if you remember that movie. I'm sort of dating myself, but when like you realize there's a Kaiser Soze and you fit, sort of see it on the wall, and you're like, Jesus, you know, has that been there the whole time? That happened to me starting 10 years ago, when, as you know from Fair Play, my husband sent me a text that said, "I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries," <laughs> uh, and I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries breakdown that subsequently happened in my car. With the breast pump and the diaper bag and the passenger seat and the and the gifts for a newborn baby in the back seat and a client contract in my lap because I had been forced out of the workforce, like all that cliche, the, the stuff that was happening to me. What I realized from then is that that was um, the beginning of understanding that the question, what do you do for fun, uh, our identities, whether or not uh, we stay in the workforce, whether or not we um, are in positions of powers, whether we can control our own money. All of these questions end up, like Kaiser Soze, coming down to one word, and that's time. And what I found out was that when you live in a society, whether it's the UK, all, you know, Australia, America, the 17 countries of women I spoke to, where you we've been trained since birth to give away this most valuable currency of time for free to others. Uh, That's what women do. Uh, Being available is who we are, becomes part of our identity. This idea, the permission to be unavailable, to have fun, to have sustained attention for things we love is actually um, pretty subversive Mm. and and not, and really frowned upon. I mean, I tell you what I find is that I'm quite bullshy even though I'm also a sort of quivering wreck. So the bullshitness means that I'm able to say that I'm unavailable and, and do more than I should. However, what I don't have is, the, is, is, is freedom within my own head. Right. So, or, you know, what I think what happens is that, is that we carry all this stuff around. Even if you're sitting in a darkened room, your time and your brain is still occupied with all these things. So I love the idea that unicorn space really comes down to, as you say in the book, self-expression. And that's what, you know, we might think that going for a walk is unicorn space or going for a swim is unicorn space. But really, that that might be a conduit to it. But what we're talking about is ways to be who we really are in the world. Well, again, why this was so important to me was um, after Fair Play and uh, when we, we had this huge reception, thousands and thousands 
of couples and women were coming to me saying, I'm making my home more efficient. I, I'm standing up for my right not to have to do it all, to be it all. But then there was this still a void of so many women telling me about this passion gap in their life that because for so long they had put stock in being a parent and or a partner and or a professional, that this idea that there's anything else out there for them was almost like the mythical equine. It's why it became called unicorn space. It didn't exist. It can be beautiful and magical, but if it doesn't exist, what's the point? I mean, don't tell my daughter that, right? (laughs) So uh, the idea of bringing a unicorn to life, the idea of taking up space, uh, the way Virginia Woolf said that, you know, a woman can never be Shakespeare because she doesn't have a room of one's own. And she meant that physically because in the pandemic, a lot of women did not have rooms of one own. I heard many stories of women working in a bathtub with a kid on their lap and a laptop while men were taking up the good space. But also, like you said, Annabelle, it's the metaphorical. What happens when our brain can't shut off because not only are we conditioned to be available to others, but then when we decide, like you said, to go, you know, big and say, I'm taking this time for myself, guilt and shame just roll right in where we get all these, I should be doing something else. And so... It becomes a or good old fashioned burnout, right? Or burnout. And so that's, I think that's exactly the point. What you said about a unicorn space, what I found was that when women said to me, I have a passion gap, I wouldn't even know what to do at that time. This book looks at what you could do at that time. It says to you, burnout is not going to be solved from a a drink with a friend. That's self-care. Or that's friendships. It's not going to be solved from a walk around or the alcohol block. abuse. Or at, right. how far it goes. <laughs> right. But basically, the idea is that the only way to solve burnout at this stage is to be interested in our own lives. It's that real like moment where you realize, you know, that you are just so tick boxy in your life, and it's almost like sometimes you you do things ahead of yourself just because you think it's going to give you extra time but of course it doesn't does it it just feels like a like one of those like creepy (laughs) like you know sort of slimy things that just fills the space that needs to so you actually have to be like quite strict and 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 you have to be quite brutal with yourself and with the people that you love that are taking up your space if you could just know that we're talking about not one big goal and you never revisit it again the idea that creativity is linked to daily flourishing If the word of the year in 2021 was Adam Grant's word languishing, what we now know from science, if you don't believe me from a gender perspective, believe me from a scientific perspective that I want you, I gift you daily flourishing and daily flourishing gets there by these unicorn space experiences. I love it. It's almost an affirmation. I now feel like I want to wake up in the morning and say, today I am flourishing in the mirror. I want to flourish. I intend to flourish. Um, I deserve to It's so to much flourish. more beautiful than thriving. I think, I like the word daily flourishing. I think it's a beautiful, I like all ish words, but yeah, that it's, it feels like squishy. Um, but the, I want to just say something really important about, and then we'll get into some of the daily, the, the fun, you know, practices or prompts. When I heard this from many mental health specialists, it really crystallized why this is not a how to be happy book. Because the true definition of mental health, and this is important for women, and especially women who have children, who've ever said to your children, I just want you to be happy, child. That's actually not the reframe. What you want to say to your child and to yourself is, I want you to have the appropriate emotion at the appropriate time and the ability and strength to weather it. 
And that was such an important relief for me that I didn't have to be happy all the time, that I can have appropriate emotions at the appropriate time. And most of them are rage since 2016, (laughs) but that I deserve a fucking umbrella that I can't drown. And so the idea that I can carve out time for my hip hop dance again, or to write my second book, I deserve this time to have an umbrella. I don't need to drown in the rain. It will always rain on us. And happiness can be a clue instead of the end goal. It was so freeing because it's not a constant always practice. It just says, you know what? I want experiences that can't be taken away from me. The people in unicorn space, when they have a unicorn space experience, they reported back to me, I can't believe I just did that. Yeah. And that's what I gift to everybody here. Daily flourishing linked to something in your life where you get to say, I can't believe I just did that. I bet you both felt that way when you uploaded your first episode of this podcast. This is a unicorn space here. I feel it. You have curiosity for your guests, real curiosity. You're great interviewers. You connect with each other and to guests, and then you complete something you uploaded, even if it's not perfect, even if you're just recording on your phone. So you do this. You protect that. I think, but I think, I think that just, sorry to interrupt you. I think that making a thing is a wonderful feeling. You know, whether it is, you know, I mean, this is it's a little bit, you know, domestic, whether it's a cake, whether it's a picture, yep. a book, a podcast, and you think, fuck, I made a thing. Yeah. You know, little like micro legacies where you look at it and you think putting a little bit of who you are out into the world, which is really where you live with this book, isn't That's it? That's it. Well, I love First of all, I've never heard that before. And I'm going to every time I hear something good, I put it on my index notes. So back to curiosity, I think micro legacies is such a beautiful, because the last chapter in this book is about what an active legacy is. And an active legacy is the building of these micro legacies, which I think is so beautiful. And absolutely. And, and yes, crafting has been part of the domestic. And so it's, it's been so devalued. But actually, we now know that thinking with the hands is actually a great way to get out of thinking at the brain when you need that time to, to decompress, to Uh, use different active parts of your brain centers. And so for me, it's never been with my hands. I'm not a stitching in needles or crafting, but it is, I do write with a pen. I I hold a pen. And so I will say those making things, whether it's a ham radio technology as one man did all the way to the robotic cakes of this woman, Abigail in the book, make putting yourself out in the world like that making something is so beautiful thank you for saying that can i drag you back to how to begin and how we look at values and how that can help us to be less intimidated by self-expression so the way to begin is to really think about which c intimidates you which c uh, you want to focus on curiosity connection completion if you're somebody who says i have a passion gap i don't even know what i'm curious about anymore one of my friends said that to me I'm, the only thing I'm curious about, Eve, is scrolling my friend's Venmo transactions. So I said, okay, <laughs> great. Um, I didn't know you could do that. And then I started scrolling. I didn't people. know you could do that either. What is that? Does that mean you could look at what they're spending yeah, their money so on? So my friends spent oh a lot God, of money on sushi. So they spent a lot of money on sushi. I'll just tell you that. They're a lot of money. Um, and just make your thing private. But anyway, uh, so that that's an aside. But, that, but that's not the curiosity we're talking about. The C is I'm not even sure what it is anymore. The return to your values is so powerful. Um, But the hardest part, I would say, for women like us, women that have more privilege and have been told with that privilege that we could do many things with it, is the last C, completion 
is a really hard one. Uh, one woman said to me, and you saw in the book, I've become a graveyard of unfulfilled dreams. Oh, God. It, it was... It's painful. It, it, it really was a is. painful thing. Um, and she then sort of made fun of it by saying it, all she had to do was look at her GoDaddy account of all the uh, <laughs> domain names. The she websites. Had, yeah, yes, she had, she had uh, registered over the years. But what I think is really serious about that is back to being loud and wrong is actually not allowed of women. No. It's just God, loud it's... and wrong. You can't be loud and wrong. Well, you Apparently, can only you can be, be loud reworked. and right. You can be loud and right. But you or can't quiet be, and wrong. Or quiet and wrong. But you cannot be loud and wrong. Like so many of the men that are out there in the world and failing really loud and wrong, including our, my, the ex-U.S. president. But because we can't be loud and wrong, we equate completion with excellence. Yes. And that's just not okay. It's no, a, it's okay to be loud and wrong. It is it's okay, unless you're on QAnon and and being wrong with like your facts. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying just just be out there, be imperfect, complete something, do your pottery that has the cracks in it. Because in Japan they call that more beautiful pottery. It's okay to complete and not make it perfect. It's okay to upload this episode and say, you know what. That wasn't my favorite, but it, just get it out there. But I, I mean, I imagine if there was, if there was a suddenly a, you know, a great wave of creativity and self-expression coming through, not from, you know, from women who are in their 40s, yeah. 50s, 60s, who were educated to believe that they couldn't. And now they're just, just giving it a fucking go. Well, that's Renee. Renee, I wanted to shout out Renee. Um, my, one of my favorite stories is just this, you know, of this amazing woman who was a stay-at-home mom there, you know, and she just looked at her four kids as they were getting older and they're like, and she was thinking, you know, you guys don't know me. You know me only in relation to you. And that sucks. And I don't want to die like that. And, you know, she's talking about her friends to me that, you know, at their funerals who died young saying like, she gave so much of herself. She gave everything to me. And she's like, I don't fucking want that eulogy. <laughs> <laughs> and so her idea, like, okay, well, I have a need for speed. This is a story in, in the Find Your Unicorn Space in the book. And she says, you know what? I, I just, I'm sick of being an object at rest. Like, I, I want to move. And she's like, well, I'm curious about moving in a car. I'm curious about what would happen if at 57 I decided to race a car. What oh, kind of race story. could I go in at 57? Well, maybe it's the Carrera Pan, Pan America in Mexico. And, and this woman at 67 now, 10 years later, um, she raises the most money for child trafficking of like one of any nonprofits. Uh, and she, she's in Antarctica right now, racing um, her race car, retrofitted for, for an iceberg. I mean, so that, I think it's never too late. And, and when you hear these stories, she's not exceptional. And she'll tell you that. She's a regular woman from Colorado who said, I'm curious about the need for speed. Do you know, just to take this into a really different sort of, you know, it's a less soulful arena. Last week, we had a really um, uh, brilliant financial specialist on the podcast talking about pensions and, 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 and how to be less scared about money. And she said, just start. Whatever point you are, just start. And I think it's the same with creativity. I think if you can just start, every time you start something is a win. That is 100%. And I think, again, the back to those micro legacies understanding that if you're triggered, though, by that last C of completion, finishing is important, too. And whatever it is that you want to finish, finish it. If it's writing, just write a haiku. 
It's just, you know, a haiku. One woman said that she wanted to start writing. She was very scared of the prospect of saying she wanted, because people kept saying she needed to be a writer. And I said, well, why can't you just keep it as writing? Why do you have to, why do you have to put it as your identity? Um, yeah. You don't need to be a writer. Um, you know, you're writing. You're a person who writes. And she started to do haiku. Otherwise, you have to be a painter, a well, cook. Well, that's it. I'm not uh, a cook. I'm, I, I'm a person who wants to be curious about learning a dish. I'm somebody who may want to go to an art store and pick up some watercolors and paint. But I think when you keep it as a, a verb as opposed to the noun, that active pursuit of a unicorn space is a lot more freeing to me, at least. Because I have lots of unicorn spaces. Today, I want to be a murder mystery I want to, like, I'm a person who was interested in being curious about how I may write one day a murder mystery. I'm, who knows oh, yeah, yes. Okay. That's, that's my new unicorn space at the moment. So, yes, if you do some murder mystery writing, then one day you may be a murder writer, mystery writer. Exactly. But you don't have to staple your identity to that. 1,000 Experiment. That I, say that right a thousand the second, times. yeah. That is exactly right. It's completely in play. And we live in this culture, whether we're conscious of it or not, that's based on this ascension myth, particularly for women. It's that women are sort of the source of depravity. We cause the fall. And now it's our job to sublimate the body and all of its appetites to sort of clamber our way back up to prove our worthiness. And again, it's like you don't have to actually believe that in order for it to have purchase in your mind that the body is base, that wanting things is wrong. You know, as women, we're fed this culture of selflessness and nurturance and care. We're told that this is our nature rather than understanding it as culture informing our nature and the rules that we're supposed to play. And, and you mentioned, too, that perhaps the most insidious and painful part of this is that we dislocate from our own bodies. Many of us have no idea what we want, what our bodies want, what our souls want, how we want to show up in the world. For many of us, this has never been modeled by our own mothers and our grandmothers. And so not only can we not recognize it, but we recognize it in other women and then we slap it out of them. Yeah. So I think we can, we've all observed this that sort of rising discomfort when we see another woman doing something or being something that we would never allow ourselves to be. Mm -hmm. And the instinct is, I don't like her, or mm -hmm. sort of this character assassination that is completely socially sanctioned. We're all used to this, rather than actually saying, what is it that she's doing that's bothering me? And recognizing that most likely she's pushing on a dream that you have for yourself. Mm. This is that you've got that wonderful idea in the book. I think it's in the sloth chapter, yes. sloth chapter about expanders. Yeah. And that would be a way, wouldn't it, of, of doing precisely the opposite of what you've just said. Yes. Yeah. So this is this woman here in California and she's, you know, totally wonderfully woo-woo, really smart. And she has this manifestation company, but it's not just sort of like put a yacht on a board and pray to it and exercise <laughs> all negative thoughts from your mind. <laughs> and um, that is not her business. She works with the neuroscientist. And the idea is deep work to identify 
all of your limiting self-conscious beliefs, everything in you that says, I can't have that because maybe you grew up without any resources or you've never seen anyone achieve the thing that you want for yourself. So you have all these mental blocks. So her program is designed to sort of take you deep into yourself, reparenting like all the things so that you can actually get in touch with that deep, deep wanting. And part of the process is simple and yet revolutionary, which is to go out into the world and you can use your envy as a way of doing this of like, who's bothering me? Like, for example, I have no envy of Taylor Swift or any sort of public woman like that. I don't want to be an actress. I don't have I don't hold any of these dreams for myself. What singers do doesn't bother me. But you go out in the world and you start looking for like who is really bugging you Mm -hmm. and why. And again, I want to separate this and say sometimes, at least particularly here in the States, there are a lot of women that bother us because they are <laughs> behaving in cruel and horrible and inhumane in, in insane ways in politics, for example. So this isn't about condoning or assuming that every woman has information for you, but you, you'll you know the difference as you do the work. <laughs> well, but I mean, Lacey I think talks- you say, I think you talk about it, you know, if you, if you, if you, if it's not just, you know, loathing, if maybe if it's envy. Um, yes. Then then there was a quote by Nietzsche in your book where mm-hmm. you said, envy and jealousy are the private parts of the human soul. And you say, instead of denying envy, we need to let it be our compass. Yes. Let it land on those tender spots that point us towards the fulfillment of desire. So if someone's pissing you off because you're jealous, it might tell yes. you what you want. Exactly. And then you use them. So in Lacey's whole concept, these are called expanders. You don't have to want everything about someone's life. They can. You might just want their career or their family or whatever it may be, but you use them. You study them. You watch them. You understand what it is. And it's, it's a process of training yourself to say, huh, if she can do that, I can do that too. Mm. And if she has that, I can have that as well. And it's a much more powerful <laughs> way of moving through the world looking for signs, looking for that internal map, than to shut yourself down and shut other women down as well. Well, of course, because yes, exactly. Otherwise, you're just negating your own desires, which is obviously something that we haven't even said the P word, have we yet so far, but the patriarchy, which is obviously the the founding fathers of the structure that we're talking about. Who have convinced us that wanting is in itself humiliating? Because, you know, we're conditioned to believe, as you say, that selfishness is bad and immoral and wrong. And that we must serve. Yes. Must serve. Must, must subjugate serve. all of our wants to other people's needs. This mm. is so, so deep in us. Mm. And it's why as we sort of crash into each other in the culture, people applaud because we're, you know, yes. we're, we're holding up a status quo. But we're and, also, and we're doing the patriarchy's work for them, which yes. is, you know, which is the thing that, I mean, I, I was really interested in the way that you filter it all the way through you know, our DNA, and we would, it, you have a chapter talking about the sort of witch trials and the way that you mm-hmm. single women out and sort of the society, the cultural time, singled women out and said, and they accused them and that was the... You break their guilty. cultural connection, you turn gossip into a terrible thing rather than what it yes. was originally, it was a sort of connection, it was about wisdom. And you make women frightened of each other. And it's exactly. interesting that you talk about that still being very much in play 500 years later, 600 years later. Yeah, you're right. 500 years later, particularly for all of you in Europe, because, you know, the Salem witch trials still have the imagination of Americans captured. And I think like Mm. 30 people died, Mm. maybe. 
And the witch craze in Europe went on for centuries, and yes. they don't know exactly how many. They're still figuring it out. But the the best guess is somewhere between eighty to one hundred thousand people, primarily women, primarily older women, keepers of wisdom. And as you said, you know, it was an act of self preservation often to turn in your friends, to turn in your daughter, to turn in your mother. Mm-hmm. When we think we're sort of now cracking into this idea of intergenerational trauma and pain. And we certainly haven't fully processed or metabolized what that meant and that dramatic shift from sort of this like horizontal, everyone doing life together, affiliative subsistence style way of being to this patriarchal fear the other, she will denounce and kill you mentality, Mm -hmm. which I do think is still part of our consciousness. Yeah. Mm. No, and you think about all the knowledge and all the sort of, you know, emotional capability that's lost. Because if, if someone gives you a feeling, whether it's anger, rage, you know, joy, whatever, but you then say, that person gave me a feeling, therefore they are bad. Yes. You then, at the same time, suppress all your own ability to connect with your feelings too, right? Because you don't want to feel yes. that way. So it's just like a... So much easier for men to just assume that women are the, you know, the root of all human depravity. Well, that too as well. Yes. So yeah. That's convenient. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it is convenient. And then you think about too the primary targets of the witch hunts, and they they touched all ages, children as well, but primarily it was also our older women, our healers, midwives, the women who would initiate other women, and women who were often independent. That was what made them a primary target. They might be a widow. They might actually sort of have or have property that could then be disinherited and taken um, Mm -hmm. as part of this. And you see this whole gender side happen. And we're still terrified. You know, the witch, the witch was the witch because of the cauldron and the broom. Those were the symbols of the housewife. Mm. And you think about how that still persists in our culture and the lack of older women who we revere and, you know, men, these patrician men, we are like, they're our judges, our professors, and we're still suspicious of older women. There's a quote, a wonderful quote in the book that says, the less you need to be to the world, the more you can be to yourself. So conversely, we spend our whole lives trying to be something for other people to see. We sacrifice our relationship with ourselves. Yes. Don't we? Yeah. So y- your book is is asking for a, a reconnection individually as well as uh, a, you know a rebuilding of community, isn't it? Yes, and it's this take back of this act of self abandonment that so many of us are primed for. And this isn't to say that of course you're gonna put other people's needs for some of the time, but it is this complete. It, 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 life is a give and take. It's an act of reciprocity. But for women, we have been giving a lot more than we've been taking, if we take it all. And so it's a rebalancing, a actually my needs, I need to understand what they are. That's the thing. So many of us, it's like they're just buried. So much of this is undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not to belabor the envy chapter, but when I've talked to people about it, what's so this happened with my editor this happened with friends where they'd be like, oh, I don't feel that. I don't have that. I don't really know what you're talking about. And I would say, okay, interesting. 
Um, this is how, you know, I think it presents. Think about the women. You know, this was a friend of mine. We were sitting, and her older mom was like, oh, yeah, girl, you're, I'm so past that. And the next day, you know, I was like, think about the women who bother you. And I woke up, I was at a, a meeting and I was like, holy shit, I have 27 texts. <laughs> <laughs> and it was my friend who was like, this person, this person. This, it was all these creatively expressed women with brands. That and she's never been able to do that for herself, and she was like, "And I, this person drives me effing crazy." And I was like, "Okay, there you go. You found it. You found it. Now use it." But it was funny. This sort of like, I don't know what you're talking about, and then this barrage, just like an eruption. Once you actually identify it, I mean, I feel like every chapter in your book could come before an eruption, whether yes. that would be, you know. Physical hunger, you know, yeah. your, your chapter on, on, on gluttony and, you know, and you know, we've talked about this before, but, you know, I thought it was interesting that we equate thinness with obedience, with, you know, yes. with, with being a person who cares about acceptance and desirability and discipline, but also just this, this, this acceptance that we should be making ourselves smaller in the smaller. world. Smaller. Yes. yes. And even when we go, oh, no, I reject that idea. I know it's still very hard for us to go or not to go. I still want to make myself smaller. Yes. And what's so interesting about the question of gluttony, which is really sad because food, pleasure, it's one of the main ways that we contact the world. And the way that we police ourselves around what we eat and the size of our bodies is such a waste of energy. And the conversation, you know, I was good today. I was bad today. Like the moral thematics of it are so insistent and strong. And then this idea, of course, of like women should be small, diminutive, men should be large and strong, you know, write a lot about the masculine and the feminine. The masculine, these are energetic qualities, not gendered ideas. So the, the masculine, when it's balanced, is order, structure, truth. The feminine, when balanced, is nurturance, care, creativity. And we, as humans, regardless of how we identify sexually, regardless of how we identify in terms of our gender, have these qualities, all of them. And what we're, we're living in is that all of these feminine qualities are being assigned to women as our nature, and the masculine qualities are being assigned to men as their nature. And that is living at half-mast, and the feminine needs to come up. It needs to come up for men. And it needs to be countered in women by a full expression of our masculine. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, I think that women feel so cautious, as you say, about feelings that they have been educated to believe are unacceptable. And I think the idea of a woman being masculine, it isn't necessarily one of the deadly sins. It might not be, you know, greed or lust or -hmm. or anger or, you know, gluttony or sloth. But it does, you know... Suddenly, when we were growing up, it was like, you know, apart from be a good girl, it was, you know, don't be butch, don't be pushy, don't be, you know, and and the way that all these things get flipped for us, whereas a man is assertive, a woman is a nag or, you know, so, you know, so again, it's about these expectations that are woven through the fabric of us. Yes, a thousand percent. And that's where the movement comes in, because Mm. the more that we allow each other to tell the truth about our lives and to exist fully in the world, the more that things will change. And so this shows up, yes, women are, you know, ambition is a bad word for women, right? And 
one of the things that drives me nuts in corporate culture is this admonishment to women to be more confident. And I feel incredibly confident and confident in my competence. And most of the women I know, yes, of course, there's always imposter syndrome. But for the most part, the women I know are incredibly confident and competent. But we have been you know, told, like, be more confident, argue for your value. And that is BS advice in this world because that is, as you were saying, perceived as being a terrible quality. Yeah. And so we learn to not express it. We learn how to caveat it. We learn it's not a function of not being confident. It's a function of not letting the world know that we're confident. Mm -hmm. And so we're doing sort of this double duty. But the more, and this, the problem in, in corporate culture is the social science suggests that women are just as hard on other women as men are hard on women. And so mm -hmm. the more onside women can get with other women, the more we can stop ourselves and diagnose what's happening Yeah. and then say, okay, I see. I'm feeling a little threatened that this woman is telling me her value and what she wants to be paid. Let me just calm myself down. And then figure out how to support her. The more we can do that, the more it changes. And you see this in conversations. You see this with Me Too. You see this with women talking about their abortions and in America. You start to change the norms. We certainly mm. see it in the opposite way, in the way norms, terrible norms can be mainstreamed. But until women release ourselves from this constant surveillance, mm and start being honest mm -hmm. and supporting each other in our honesty, then we aren't going to see the change that we want. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin of The Middle. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.